Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a number of things. Uh, one topic that came up is dearth in the land. Uh, it's mentioned quite a few times in the Bible where they have this word dearth, D-E-A-R-T-H. And uh, that's not a very common word we use today, but in the Old English, uh, D-I-R-T-H, dearth, uh, means kind of a lack of something, uh, something uh, in an insignificant amount uh, that m- you may need in a larger amount. And uh, I can think of lots of different things, uh, deficiencies and insufficiencies and inadequacies uh, uh, that uh, may come about and may have already come about in this day and age, and we don't even know it yet. And uh, we're seeing... Uh, People seeing empty shelves in the stores and they order stuff and it doesn't come in and parts and materials and the shortage of computer chips all with the events in the news. Well, one of the things that I think we have a tremendous shortage of is common sense and wisdom and forgiveness and righteousness. We seem to have an abundance of unrighteousness. But not uh, not much righteousness today. So that's a scarcity that's going to cause problems. And as I you know I listen to the news, about the only news I get is just before the program goes on. I listen to some of the highlights of the news that come out, and uh, they talk about different things. And uh, Elon Musk comes out and says uh, that uh, we have a shortage of people in the world. <laughs> now, most people, especially among the awoke, will say that's ridiculous. We have too many people in the world. And, of course, there's been a movement for the last 20, 30, 40 years to reduce the world population to as many as 500 million or a billion people. And uh, there are lots of people who actually want to do that, reduce the world's population because they think that somehow or other um, that... Uh, that man is a blight on the planet. Uh, but, uh, you know, when I I think of, you know, uh, lots of different things that I've read in history, uh, when people came to certain areas and what, what went on before they got there, like Lewis and Clark crossing America, and they found vast areas of America that were just prairie dogs and prairie dog holes and clouds of lice and uh, California was known as the land of the smoke because the forests were always burning sometimes through most of the winter the forests even burned because of the fact that there was so much growth there that uh, it was just falling in on itself and setting fires And, and I've seen big forest fires where animals come running out of the flames on fire themselves uh, and where the fires get so hot because of the amount of fuel in the forest that the soil has actually destroyed and nothing comes back for years and years and years. And uh, we've actually had fires like that recently. 
And it's not because of global warming. It's because of bad forestry management. And I'm kind of an expert in forestry management. That's what I went to the University of Minnesota for. I thought I was going to be a, a forest ranger and, and did work in the field uh, for the state and federal for a while. But uh, then I I decided to actually quit one of the jobs and they asked me why and I said because I intend to work for a living and I'm not allowed to do that here. And uh, so that that was my experience with the uh, forestry department. I've done some work for private forestry, but uh, I've it was always a passion because I I was reading silviculture books when I was eight years old, and uh, and you know knew Pinchot. Uh, I not personally, <laughs> not that old, but uh, read books by him, and yeah, I could see the forest management practices have really gone downhill, and I always wondered where where did that come from because they had such a a detailed understanding of forest management uh you know back in the days of Teddy Roosevelt they didn't they didn't have all the labor to do it with because of the fact that it can be very you know the amount of forest and it can be very labor intensive to do a lot of the work that you could do to make those forests more productive and uh, more diversified, etc. But uh, the reality is, is that uh, I believe that it's actually been college educations and this, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to pick on Greenpeace specifically, but this kind of mindset uh, that you know you're going to learn about nature in a book. And you can learn a lot in the books. Uh, when I was reading books at eight, eight years old uh, by Penchot, uh, I found some of those same books at the University of Minnesota <laughs> in my forestry classes. But I also saw the newer books coming along. And uh, they had a, a, a lot less practical understanding of forestry. And I saw, you know, when I first came to California, I was probably 13 years old. Yeah, I was 13 years old. And I, and we stopped in a number of the forests uh, along the way as a tourist. And I picked up brochures. And they, I remember one, I can just still see it. It said multiple use. And it talked about forest service in, in this multiple use uh, format. And but now it uh, has gotten away from that, and uh, it's gotten away from a lot of things that were just absolutely uh, practical. But college education doesn't necessarily teach you the practical things, and the same was true when I went to the seminary to study to be a priest because I did that for a number of years, and uh, I thought that there was a certain lack of practicality amongst the priests and their philosophy and their ideologies and the brothers that I, I met there that were missionaries. And missionaries, one of the things they had to do is be practical. And uh, because they lived in, often lived where there was a lot of par- poverty 
and practicality. If you weren't practical, you were often dead. You had to be practical. You had to deal with the essential facts of life. And so that seems to be one of the greatest dearths in our modern times is that a practical understanding of nature, a practical understanding of religion, a practical understanding of the Bible and the gospel of the kingdom. And this idea that uh, religion is what you think about God, which is the definition that you'll get if you Google it, you know, what you think about a supreme being, is so unpractical and doesn't even encroach on the idea of being practical. It's astonishing. And just 200 years ago, the definition of religion was the pious performance of a duty to not only God, but to your fellow man. And of course, your duty to God is to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, If we're looking at what Christ said were the two greatest commandments, that's certainly in there. And the other one was to love God. Now, what is God? I I saw somebody was asked, actually it was Elon Musk again, uh, was asked if he believed in God. And he he had a long hesitation. And you could see in his eyes, he was thinking about the question. And I think he's contemplated the question, and that's actually what he went on to say, is that he's contemplated this question since he was a kid. But he looks out in the world and he sees the universe and he sees the life on this planet. And he believes that there is a creative force that brought it about. The reason I'm sure that he's hesitating and saying, just throwing out the blanket, said, yeah, I believe in God, is because he doesn't necessarily believe in the God in your imagination. He knows that people think all kinds of things. And if I say I believe in God and you say you believe in God, then we both believe in the same thing, right? No. Because your view of God, your your imagined interpretation of what God is may be different than mine. And you can try to limit it and say, well, I believe in the God of the Bible. Well, what? The God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament? Because we're told in some places and by some theologians that those are two different gods almost. That God changed things and now he's doing things differently. Although, in the Bible itself, it tells us that God is the same. So, is the God of the Old Testament actually different than the God of the New Testament? Or is it what we imagine the God of the Old Testament to be is different? Because we didn't understand the Old Testament. Of course, that's a common theme here is that we go back and we look at the Old Testament and find out that Moses and Jesus, which we see in the New Testament, were actually in agreement. And and Jesus is quoting Moses, especially when it comes to love thy neighbor as thyself, which is a part of that, those two great precepts upon which all commandments of God hinge. And so to... Elon Musk, which I don't want to quote him as a, a, a religious authority, but at least he sees the importance of more people. That we're facing uh, population collapse. And in the years to come, 
in the not very distant future, we may see that taking place on a grander scale than anything that we have ever imagined. But that's uh that's a topic for another time but that that would be a dearth a scarcity of people and of course there are like i say there are people who want to see a scarcity of people they think a lot of the world's problems would be solved if there was a scarcity of people but if that does come about it will only come about because of the scarcity of common sense and understanding that uh people don't seem to grasp they they have this this removal from understanding so that they do not realize what's really going on in the world we have a lot of what we have they call dysphoria or cognitive dissonance uh, where cognitive dissonance is where you hold two ideas in your mind at the same time that are contradictory but then uh, this also will lead to the the delusions and uh and uh, dysphoria's where people, you know, where a guy who's always been a guy who has X and Y chromosomes has had them all his life, from when he was in the womb, when he was growing up. He stands six foot five inches tall. He's got uh, heavier bones than most women. He's got more muscle tone than most women, because he has these hormones that have been secreted in his body since he was a small child. Uh, like I say, even in the womb. And he identifies as a woman and they let him compete against other women whose, whose legs aren't as long as his arms. And uh, he beats them and they say he's a champion. Not just a champion, but the woman's champion. <laughs> That's insane. That shows a total lack of any practical common sense. But... That's what people have been doing and, and letting other people get by with it. How did the society get so weak and confused and dysphoric as to let these things take place? Now, there is some sort of move back now where some states are talking about not letting these people uh, who have this dysphoria about their actual gender because they have a, an actual medical, biological gender which alters them and makes them far more competitive against the people who do not have those hormone enhancers that they have had since they were in the womb. And there's this weakness and dysphoria in society itself that can't deal with that. So the pushback, though, is feeble and confused and apologetic and uh, has to be defended against all comers. I mean, even saying this on Twitter, I could get canceled <laughs> because there's a censoring of speech. But we're, we're commonly talking about things that people do not want to hear or do not want to believe or do not want to understand and actually war against because of the fact that we're in the process of seeking the truth. That's what we're seeking. And just this morning, uh, I got a news story that uh, entitled, The State Can Abduct Children Through CPS, uh, called Medical Kidnapping, uh, according to Representative Tammy Nichols, in uh, a case in Idaho. 
And uh, I actually thought originally it was another state, but I guess that's getting close to home. But I've seen this for years, decades and decades in Oregon. I've seen not only where children have been taken away from their natural parents uh, for no good reason, for rumors. And it ended up that the rumors came from somebody who was a friend and actually uh, cohabitated with somebody who worked at Children's Services. And it ended up that the person who worked at Children's Services was actually a registered sex offender when they got the job at Children's Services. (laughs) So together they were instigating a plan to steal children from vulnerable parents. You know, this this was a, a single parent. It was the uh, father, a single parent who was rather old uh, in relationship to what you would normally expect for a small child. Uh, but he was very dedicated to the child and uh, wanted to take care of the child and was doing a pretty good job. I know the guy. I've known him for years. And uh, he had not done anything. But while that child was in the custody of children's services... It was sexually abused by employees in children's services. They actually made a video of this abuse and passed it around in children's services. And of course, when that news came out, then the, you know, the wagons lined up in order. This all happened decades ago now. But, uh, that kind of abuse could come about because certain protocols in what we would call a justice system were removed. Those protocols are actually written into the biblical text because the Bible is actually a guide to the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. You wouldn't know that by going into most churches because they say, oh, the government's over there. We're just going to church over here and singing praises to Jesus that we love. Meanwhile, children are being abducted. Children were actually out of that same office. There's very clear evidence that children were trafficked to another country. And they got away with it. It was exposed. The videos were made. The testimonies were presented. But, like I say, the wagon circled and they just squashed it. And eventually the, the father of the child... The child was eventually released from the custody. She did not get trafficked, although one of her abductors was going back and forth to Mexico. Uh, The child uh, finally was released. She was in her mid-teens by the time she was released from their custody. And the father got to spend more time with her. and uh, But then he eventually passed away. But that was a nightmare story that we were going through for years, and I was, and because of that, uh, I'm I'm far removed from these things. But because of that, lots of other people uh, were bringing these stories to me decades ago, and they're still going on because this story in Idaho is recent. And uh, what it ends up is that. This inordinate power given to Children Protective Services in many, many, many states uh, is partially due to the fact that they can make an accusation or somebody can make an accusation and they don't have to prove it in a court of law. 
they can simply take the child away and the parent has to prove that they're innocent of the accusation. And, of course, that means they have to prove that Children Protective Service employees are wrong. It's not just that they have to prove they're innocent, which they shouldn't have to do, but they have that process equals proving that Child Protective Service was unjustified in its action. And they work together to keep you from proving that. Now, also, you're going, you're dragged into court or you're, you're, you have to go into court. You're not dragged into court because they actually bypass the courts. You have to go into court to sue to get your rights to your children back. This is going to cost you money. It's going to cost you time. If you're trying to start a business, I just was communicating with somebody today who started a business and, uh, and the business is taking, he's finding out how much time, you know, when you're an employee, it's one thing. When you're doing your own business, you, you have no time. You're, you, you end up working ridiculous hours trying to keep your business going. And uh, now all of a sudden somebody pulls this on you and you have to hire lawyers and you have to go to court. Uh, it can devastate a family. It can devastate an individual. And this is why, one of the reasons why Christians, real Christians, who are doing what Christ actually said, which is what Moses was actually saying, actively loving your neighbor as yourself, not coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. Christ forbid that, so no Christian would be doing that. If they were doing that and thought that was okay, you would know that that person is not really born again. They're just under a strong delusion, just like the 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 individual who claims that he's a woman and he's clearly a man and he wants to compete against women in sports like swimming or wrestling or weightlifting all of which would give him a decided advantage he's, he's suffering from dysphoria or else he's just lying and the same is true of the Christian who thinks they're a Christian but are still coveting their neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority one over the other. Because Christ clearly said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that you are not to be that way. And of course, if we understood that religion was this pious performance of a duty to God and your fellow man, which is mean to have a daily ministration that takes care of the needy of your Christian community through faith, hope, and charity like John the Baptist and all the prophets said, then you would not have a dysphoria about thinking you're a Christian when you're not. Because Christ warned that many would come thinking they are Christians and followers of Christ, but they were actually workers of iniquity. And so... That's where we're at. So where, what do we do if we want to become real Christians? Where do we go? How does that look? What is the practical ramifications of that? We'll talk about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So I, I sent off the article to the ministers group. And if you're already sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, you can get a hold of them and they can send you the link to that article. 
But it was a crossroads uh, interview and video. And the, like I said, the woman's name was Tammy Nichols, who is, a, I guess, a Republican state representative. But uh, w- that is not really the topic of the the uh, show today. But the reality is that's a real problem. And if we were really being Christians for the last 100 years in America, all the people claiming to be Christian in America, this would not be taking place to the degree that it is taking place. They're, they're talking about this as if this is a new apparition, but I wanted to let people know that this has been going on for decades and decades and decades. In state after state, I have contact all over the United States, New York, Kentucky, in uh, Kansas, and uh, uh, Arizona. I'm just going through the different cases that I was dealing with. Uh, small children, larger children, and then, of course, the, this medical kidnapping We that was in the news recently because of uh, people that were... You know, we're in a traffic accident and then we're ended up waking up on a ventilator and uh, being treated for COVID, supposedly. And he didn't actually even have COVID. He didn't have anything wrong with him, really. And he pulled the ventilator out himself and got up out of the bed, pulled the catheter out himself and uh, because they had sedated him. And uh, he... He said, I'm leaving this hospital. <laughs> He's out walking miles the very same day, not dying of COVID at all. Other people did not fare as well as he did uh, in getting out of this kind of medical tyranny. Also in the news, just before the show began, doctors are, are finding out this mysterious thing called the omega-3 oils which you can get in grass-fed beef and you can get in uh, fish and and different sor- natural sources like that, uh, can actually reduce the threat of cancer and the curative process in the body against cancer. And they're surprised. Although we've been telling people this for years and years and years and it's been known for years. And if you go all the way back to Hippocrates who said, let thy food be thy medicine. There's huge amounts of things that can be done to take care of you, but they're practical. They're they're not driven by a pharmaceutical industry, like, you know, natural immunity. And that is almost like, you know, you could get censored for mentioning natural immunity. And we've seen all this being... Uh, in the news and taking place over the last two years, uh, crazy attitudes, crazy viewpoints that people have uh, concerning natural immunity, which has kept people uh, surviving as a species for thousands of years. And they seem to be totally oblivious to the fact that you can actually become immune. Even the first vaccine was only invented because somebody saw how you can get natural immunity by being exposed to a disease with less danger. And, of course, uh, 
you know, so they, but now what they call vaccines goes way outside of the parameters of the original vaccine and are doing all sorts of things. But again, the point is that there's a dearth of compassion, a dearth of common sense, a dearth of understanding. Nobody should think that they're a Christian while they're coveting their neighbor's goods as a matter of policy. Nobody should think that they're a Christian if they're doing what Christ absolutely forbid us to do. You know that you're not born again Christian if you're continually doing evil. And it's evil to covet your neighbor's goods. It's evil to send men to your neighbor's house and force them to contribute to what you want for free. That's evil. It's evil to want to see the population of the world diminished by half or a third or whatever. That's evil. Because we were told to be fruitful and multiply. Now, admittedly, everybody who is multiplied are not fruitful. But where is the line to be drawn? Where is the line actually uh, taking place in society? We are separating ourselves from the way of Christ. That's what Christianity was called, the way. The modern church has almost no resemblance to what that early church was doing. And when you point it out, you get a deer in a headlight look from a modern Christian who thinks they are a believer because of what he imagines in his head. It's not supported by facts. That's another thing. Facts don't matter anymore. In finding the truth, facts matter. Even Pontius Pilate understood that. I I heard uh, people in the, you know, uh, giving us a preacher, giving a sermon, uh, talking about how... Uh, uh, actually, uh, even a theologian was saying this. Um, uh, I think it's Bart Ehern uh, was saying this in his study of Jesus. Is that the Romans condemned Jesus to death, tried him and condemned him to death before literally kind of insurrection against Rome. But the reality is that's not even what it says in the text. It says that Pilate washed his hands of the case. He even filled out a formal document saying Jesus Christ was king. We see the Romans later in Acts defending Christians against uh, zealous Jews who wanted to attack them. Because Jesus was not convicted of any crime. Really, by Roman standards, and uh, he, he wasn't even put to death by the Romans. The Romans were there because of the fact that they keep order, and there's a mob there, and so they were there. That's why they were in Judea at that time, was to keep order, and uh, it was not the Romans, but the uh, an element... I can't say the Jews did it either. That would be unfair because all the apostles were Jews. <laughs> the 120 in the upper room were Jews. The 70 were all Jews. 
Most of the converts of, to Christianity were all Jews and still called themselves Jews for decades and maybe a hundred years or more. The idea of calling these Jews Christians didn't appear till Antioch. But the, the Jewish Christians were following the way, which is the way of Jesus Christ, the way of Moses and the way of the prophets. It wasn't the way of the Pharisees. It wasn't the way of the Sadducees. It really wasn't the way of the Zealots. It was a different way entirely than those people. Because many of those people, most of those people, had set up a system of Corbin that depended upon men who exercised authority one over the other to force the contributions of their neighbor to provide for the welfare of society, which at that time they knew religion was how you took care of the needy of society. And so that's what pure religion was, to take care of the needy of society, unspotted by the world. And the word world there that we see in the Greek text means, in the concordance, constitutional order and system of government. Those men who exercise authority, you are to take care of the needy of your society without depending upon men who exercise authority, which completely conforms to what Christ said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It completely conforms to what it says in Proverbs. If you be a man of appetite and sit down to eat with a ruler, be not desirous of his dainties. And if you be a man of appetite, put a knife to your throat because you'd be better off cutting your throat than eating his dainties. Because Peter says that you're covetous, coveting those dainties, those wages of unrighteousness, those rewards of unrighteousness will make you merchandise and curse your children. That's New Testament. He's telling you that. Proverbs agrees. The prophets agree. Modern Christians don't agree. They think it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods through the men who exercise authority and because there is a dearth of true Christianity in America. And so when I pointed this out, that the early church is so different than the modern church, the early church was taking care of all the social welfare of Christians, even though there was plenty of free bread around to be had from the Romans. And, you know, in the book, Thy Kingdom Come, which is free online that we publish, uh, it shows you. Uh, it actually even covers this to some degree in The Covenants of the Gods, which is also another book that I wrote years ago that uh, most of the Jews, or at least many of them, loved the Romans. because the, And they loved Caesar. When Caesar died, they mourned the loss of Augustus Caesar because he had sent so much free bread and grain from Egypt to Judea to help them out, to help out the poor. They had temples. Even even Herod built a Roman temple. He didn't just build the Jewish temple. He built the Roman temple, the Romea, uh, Roma, uh, in in Judea to take care of the needy of of the society, to be the social welfare of society. And if you signed up, you had to pay in a small amount, and then you would have this entitlement to the benefits that would come through that temple. 
and and Caesar sent extra funds besides the funds that they collected locally. So if you were a member of that temple, you got it. He sent grain to the Judean temple to be passed out to the needy of their society through their synagogues, which were ten families. Synagogue was ten families. But Christ came along and said no. No, because that would be taking benefits from men who exercise authority one over the other. And he said it wasn't to be that way with you. It was the covetous practice. And so he said, no, you don't, you don't go get that. You provide that yourself. That's what religion was. The pious performance of that duty to Jesus, to God the Father, and to the Holy Ghost, who shows you that that's true. But people aren't really listening to the Holy Ghost. They're listening to the Holy Emotion or whatever. Or some other spirit that is pretending to be the Holy Ghost. And saying to you, it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods. And so, there's a dearth of Christianity in the world today. That it's not real Christianity. It's fake Christianity. It's it's the strong delusion. So... Back to this idea of the the dearth, which is a scarcity or a lack of something from the old English dearth, meaning a lack or insignificant amount. If we go to the Greek text, it's a different word. It's limos in the Greek text that we see there, which is uh, uh, in the Greek scripture we find the word translated dearth defined in the concordance as um, a scarcity of harvest, specifically. A famine, a hunger. So there's a shortage of food. And, of course, we know also, because of the fact that the Romans were taking, shortly after Christ, and actually during the time of Christ, because, like I said, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra were doing this, and then Nero was doing this, which was after Christ, because... Tiberius was the emperor during the time that Christ was doing his ministry. And then Tiberius was followed by Caligula. And Caligula was followed by... Uh, oh, no, it was followed by... Uh, suddenly, I, I forget which one was the next one. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was Caligula. No, it was followed by Caligula. Then Caligula was followed by Claudius. And we see Claudius mentioned in... Uh, the New Testament. And and Claudius actually removed 14,000 families from Rome because they were doing something that he didn't like. And what they were doing was practicing pure religion. What they were doing is practicing a private religion that was a pure religion that did not go to the temples of Rome or to the building next to the temples of Rome to get their free bread. They were taking care of their free bread themselves. So they were kind of non-participants in the welfare system of Rome. So they had to leave. 14,000 families had to leave Rome. Well, these were called Jews in the text, but they were actually Christian Jews. Because they were setting up a system that 
did not depend on the welfare system of Rome. So, 14,000 families had to get out of town. Well, getting out of town was something the Jews should be, you know, that was one of the jokes of Tevia was that maybe the reason we were always supposed to have our hats is because we had to get out of town suddenly. <laughs> well, they had to get out of town and uh, they had this Christian network all over the Roman Empire that they could flee to that where they could start up new businesses. Um, many of them had skills and some of them had money, but they were going to have to start again uh, because they had to get out of Rome. And other cities did this as well eventually over the following couple hundred years. And But private religion was legal. It's legal today in America, but most people don't understand what private religion is. They think private religion is that we go to church and we sing songs and we say we love Jesus, even though the rest of the week we're going to do the opposite of what Jesus said. Well, because there's this dearth of understanding the real gospel of Christ. When the early Christians faced the shortages of food that were going to come about in the Roman Empire because they were demonetizing the uh, silver denarii, like I said, first with Mark Anthony and Cleopatra taking some of the silver out, 10%, and then Nero taking almost half of it out. And then by Diocletian, there had been no silver in the Roman silver denarii. There were still denarii floating around, but it was in the black market because they had gone to an all clay uh, script where you just had these little clay coins and you did, or, or iron coins. They had iron coins as well because clay coins didn't wear very good. <laughs> but the iron corn, coins would wear pretty good. But it would take 120,000 denarii at one point, according to some historians, to buy one sack of grain. Whereas at the time of Christ, it only took six. Well, we see that same thing playing out today. Supposedly by 2026, we'll have all digital currency. Well, right now, you already technically, by uh, using the language in the early 1900s, you already have moved to a cashless society because notes were never considered cash. You have nothing of value in your pocket and whatever you have in your pocket, you only have legal title to. So, But the reality is this strain from Christianity is is created a dearth of present value in your money. You have no present value in your money. Even the Federal Reserve admits that. And it's the same with all Federal Reserve type institutions all over the world. Everybody has these notes, but now they don't even want to print the notes. It costs too much to print the notes, and now they want to have digital currency. Uh, which the Pharaoh would have loved to have. <laughs> would have made his life simpler if he had the digital currency. But everybody's back in this bondage of Egypt because they have a dearth of understanding. They lack understanding. They lack common sense. They don't realize that if you take all the value out of your money and now you just have notes instead of actual real money, that your doom will be coming. You don't have just weights and measures. You've abandoned that. And now you're going to be cursed as a society. 
And so, anyway, I write on our page on Earth that preparing you, and I'm I'm expanding that all the time, is that that you'll have this diminishment of liberty. The greatest destroyers of liberty are the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And which is why Christ said you are not to go to those men who exercise authority one over the other for those benefits because it would weaken you as a people. Peter says that uh, it would make you merchandise and it would curse your children. And and nobody pays any attention to that. None of these ministers who are going to tell you what the Bible means can even see that. How do they miss that? How do they not notice that? You know, and we see right away in Mark, uh, or Matthew 24 7, uh, for nations shall arise against nations and kingdom against kingdom, you know, like Ukraine and Russia and, you know, and all these different, there'll always be these wars. And there shall be famines that spread across the Roman Empire during that time because of these political economic ideologies. And that famine that that he mentions in Matthew 24, 7 uh, is the word that they translate into dearth. It is this limo. They even call it, they translate it not only dearth, but famine. And so there were all kinds of shortages and pestilence and and even earthquakes in diverse places. Mark 13.8 talks about uh, famines also. It's the same word for dearth. You know, nations shall rise against nations. Same corresponding quote in Mark. And we see it in Luke 4.25. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias when the heaven was shut up three years and six months when great famine was throughout all the land. Well, the heaven shut up, that has to do with climate change. <laughs> and it wasn't because of SUV vehicles. It was just climate change because the climate changes. But it can produce a great famine, a great dearth. It's not, and even though when they say widows, then we can go and study widows and orphans in the Hebrew text to find out what they were talking about because this was the time of Elias and you know if that fellow who was raising his daughter by himself he's a widower but he's still a widow he he didn't have a corresponding mate and so it made it much more difficult for him to take care of his daughter but he was doing a pretty good job of taking care of her but somebody saw him as a vulnerable target and the daughter is very cute and so they tried to steal her through children's services and were making plans to take her to Mexico and down into South America where she could be trafficked fairly easy. Probably again to either uh, Americans or Europeans because they traffic those children to people who can pay the money. But anyway, uh, so this idea of helping widows, and this is what came up on Facebook where somebody was saying that the early Christians didn't hardly have to help each other because everybody was so independent. 
because the you know Christians were hardworking, industrious, and independent families. Well, they were, but there were these famines rolling through the Roman Empire, and part of the famines had to do with some weather changes, which caused some crop failures. But like in India, for years and years, they always produced enough food for all the people in India, in India. But their distribution was incompetent. And so people starved. And then we sent relief over there while people in India were exporting grain to other locations. Because it wasn't a matter of producing it, it was a matter of distribution. And of course the shutdowns affected that but we're going to show you what solution Christ gave us when we return to keys of the kingdom so welcome back to keys of the kingdom so we're talking about these dirs and that they're mentioned all throughout the old testament and uh we see it again mentioned in acts 7:11 where uh they talk about now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and the great affliction and our fathers found no sustenance. Well, there w- that's how they went into the bondage of Egypt is that there was a shortage of food and, a, uh, and then also a shortage of money uh, because they could go to Egypt and buy food, buy grain, but uh, when their money ran out, what did they have to give? They didn't have the money anymore. They used up all their money and they still wanted to buy more grain. And they weren't out of the drought because there was global warming. (laughs) I don't know that there was global warming, but there was certainly a drought at that particular time. Now, there's, you know, back to global warming just briefly. One of the biggest die-outs in Europe uh, decimated the population of Europe. Uh, besides the plagues and then eventually the wars that came about with the crusades and all that stuff in 1000s was in 540 when there was years where without a summer where they couldn't grow any crops so everybody was hunting and gathering and there was cannibal, cannibalism like i said in in china and asia and there was can, cannibalism in europe because food was in such short supply. There was such a dearth in the land. And that was caused by climate change. But it didn't get warmer. It got cooler. And there's a lot of speculation as to what caused that cooling. Volcanic eruptions or what have you. But for some reason, there was this tremendous cooling where crops just did not make it in large areas of the world. Even in sub uh, or semi-tropical areas, they their growing season was decimated. And, of course, that caused large numbers of people to move south, and that put a strain on food there and everything. But back to the bondage of Egypt came about because it was a drought. They ran out of money, couldn't buy more grain. They didn't have the wisdom to put up grain... Uh, it, the wisdom was given to their family, but it was given to Joseph. And they had sold their brother into bondage, so inevitably karma comes around. Maybe you don't want to call it karma, but the wrath of God comes around. And they get sold into bondage. And we're in bondage for 400 years. 
where 20% of their labor belonged to the government. That was the, that's the bondage of Egypt. They, they didn't have gold and silver in their pockets for money. They couldn't use it as money. They couldn't buy things with it. Although there was gold and silver around because some of them were artisans. And they would make things. But all the gold technically belonged to the government of Pharaoh. Well, today, that's the case in every country across the world. You can have gold, but you don't own it. You don't have a legal title to it. You can have land, but you only have a legal title to it. You can have children, but you only have a legal title to them. Because the traveling merchants of the earth have a full stock of lots of stuff, including men's souls. Because that's where we're at again. And and we see this process throughout history. Plutarch saw it 150 years before Christ. The masses continue with, you know, an appetite for benefits. To live at the expense of others and depend for their livelihood on the property of others. He saw that 150 years before Christ. And he said it would degenerate the people until they became perfect savages. Finding once more a monarch and a king. What do you think was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah that made them so immoral? So, so delusional. So dysfunctional. And so that they, they had this promiscuity and, and, uh, unnatural behavior. Because they were devoid of the true nature of God and therefore the nature of nature. Going back to why is the, uh, is the Forest Service doing such a poor job? Well, it's a giant bureaucracy for one thing. But uh, they're devoid of understanding nature because they don't understand themselves and their relationship with nature. They think they figured it out when they're actually farther from understanding nature. So that they go to unnatural means to find natural immunity. Even though they know statistically that natural immunity is better. What, what could you do to improve your natural immunity? That they don't even, they don't even know that they're surprised. Omega-3 oils actually make a difference in whether or not you die of cancer or not. It's been known by many people for years and years. How did they know it? Well, they knew it because they remembered and because they saw this, but they also knew it because of the same reason that Agabus knew that there was bad things coming in Acts 11.28. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth, famine, throughout all the world. What world is that? Is that the constitutional order or system of government? (laughs) Well, I have to look it up. Which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. So this is the early days of Christianity. And of course, those famines, there was going to be shortages. Already the money was becoming corrupt and in short supply. There was corruption in the courts. There were corruption in government. People were taking bribes. His own adopted son, Nero would abscond with more than half the treasury. And we've told you where he went to and 
who his descendants are. <laughs> In previous shows, you have to go back and find it. I won't reveal it here, but because uh, it, it's a suspicion, it's it's not a hundred percent evidence. But there, it was well known for hundreds of years afterwards what happened to Nero and where he went, and that that wasn't Nero who was supposedly assassinated there. But it depends on what history books you read today as to whether or not you believe this or that. But the reality is is that they knew this famine was coming by the Spirit. But they had a system already in place. There were some Christians who were wheat farmers. There were some Christians who were... Uh, operated sailing ships. There were some Christians who were skilled at all sorts of things. But they, union and discipline, as who uh, wrote uh, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he refers to Christians as, as having this union and discipline that frightened the emperors. Not because they worried about them taking over, but because they were so well united and organized if if you did attack them, specifically attack Christians, they could become so organized that they could defeat you. But that wasn't the way it wasn't the way the Pharaoh was defeated. And it wasn't going to be the way that Caesars were defeated. But the point I'm making is this was not just helping out the occasional widow and orphan. This was a vast network of charity to provide relief for whole countries of Christians. When Paul and Barnabas were leaving to go to Syria or to Galatia or to Corinth or back again, they they were carrying large amounts of funds to help out the needy of that society wherever they were headed with the help of what was given them by the others. But they were able to do this because of the union and discipline, because they had done already, Christians had done already what Christ commanded, because Christ knew what was coming, and he commanded them to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, so they would have that network of charity. Not just to help out an occasional widow with a flat tire on the side of the road, whose, whose whole livelihood uh, has been from Social Security. And not from her children. Her children haven't been taking care of her. I mean, we've seen this uh, in our own community. But we help people out anyway. But we know that it's good discipline on our parts to help out those who are a part of the network of Christ, who sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands that we will need the skills that we learned in that process to help them while we were helping other people. But, yeah, the the dearths that were coming then are coming now. And the solution then was a network of charity strengthened every day with taking care of the needy of your society so that when things got really bad, they would meet every week and those that had shared with those that did not have enough and that got them through. It didn't weaken them because they saw the personal sacrifice of those who were to help each other. And those who were lazy 
or selfish or dopers or irresponsible or uh, what what are all the things that Paul mentions that they were uh, you know backbiters and and covetous and and uh, had all these dysphorias and delusions that they would not give up and so therefore they couldn't see the truth because they couldn't see the truth about themselves they couldn't see the truth about nature they couldn't see the truth about health and immunity they were easily fooled because they were fools because they chose to be fools rather than see the truth of their own failing. You see, you cannot see the truth about the world and the universe around you until you're willing to see the truth about yourself. So, this is where Christianity was taking them. They were able to help one another out in big ways. And, you know, that's why we talk about FEMA. You know, not the Federal Emergency Management Agency, but the Faith Emergency Ministry Auxiliary. And the early Christians saw that there there was a difficulty in the people of Jerusalem helping the people in Egypt uh, or in Greece. The Greeks. Daily administration is suffering because that the actual famine went across that way first. The the dearth it kind of moved across in waves, and they they were having these shortages, and they, so we needed to have some way of, uh, you know, you're either going to transport all the grain from Jerusalem, which is not practical, <laughs> or go to some place that had grain, purchase it. And then get it to the people in Greece who did not have enough grain. Or even purchase it in Greece yourself. But it was going to cost you more. So they had to have funds in order to do that. So Peter said, you know, they they understood this idea of moving large amounts of money and food across large areas all around the empire that they needed to have somebody take care of this. And so they, the whole story of the seven men, look out amongst yourself, find men you trust, and we will appoint them over this matter. And they were able, to, these men didn't live in one place. They lived all over the place. We know that because they show up in the biblical text. But all these preachers, they just missed this. What? What were those seven men actually doing? As several of those seven men were very wealthy. And, and we see seven men again appearing in Ephesus later on in the historical record. And they were accused of robbing the temple at Ephesus again. Just like the Christians were accused of robbing the temple at Ephesus. And they had these seven men. Who were doing what? And how were they robbing the temple at Ephesus? Just like the seven we see in Acts 6. They were running a financial institution is what they were doing. They were wealthy men running a financial institution. But not one for profit. 
that as friends of the church established by Christ, they were appointed to do certain jobs that the apostles did not really have time to stop and do, but needed to be done in order to create that faith emergency ministry auxiliary of the church to go out and help get relief to places in Greece that were short, had shortages, dearths of food, maybe of money. Maybe there wasn't enough food, but there wasn't enough money to buy it because there was a shortage of money. And we know that over the following 100, 200 years, there was a lot of that because they went to these other kinds of currency that had no intrinsic value, which you've already done in America. Now, am I saying to go out and get gold? Am I saying to go out and buy hundreds of, you know, maybe thousands of pounds of grain? Now, no, that's not my point. Now, that may be a good idea for some people. It may be a bad idea unless you can carry more than... a. 100 pounds, because <laughs> you might have to move. Christians clearly had to move. In Rome, like I mentioned, 14, uh, was 14,000 families. I have to go back and look at it. Uh, uh, that had to, had to leave town, had to move out of Rome. If they had stocked up all kinds of grain and stuff, they couldn't take it with them. When they, uh, Christians in Jerusalem left Jerusalem when Titus's army surrounded Jerusalem and Titus pulled back his troops and said that they they could leave those who wanted to leave could leave but they had to go through the Roman lines in order to leave well, they also had to go through the Jewish lines in order to leave. And you couldn't take any food with you. You couldn't take any gold with you. You couldn't take any jewels with you. You had to leave everything behind. And so, stocking up may not be the answer. The answer is the Holy Spirit that Agabus had. And we all need to have. And you would have that so that you could see... That Christ does not want you coveting your neighbor's goods. You wouldn't have that dysphoria. You wouldn't have that confusion if you really had the Holy Spirit. But all kinds of people claim they have the Holy Spirit and that they're born again and they don't see that they're asking their government to take away from their neighbor so that they can have free stuff. They don't see that that's wrong. Or they see it's wrong and don't see the solution which is what Christ commanded. Because they've read the Bible, read the Bible, but they don't know that the apostles, the disciples of Christ, the 70, the 120, were told to make the people organize themselves in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands so that they would be ready to provide for one another in pure religion during the famines and durst and wars that were coming. They weren't going to have to go to Caesar. They weren't going to have to go to Pharaoh. They weren't going to have to go to FDR or LBJ or Obama or Biden or any of these guys. I can't think of the names of the 
prime ministers in other countries, but they all have their leaders who exercise authority one over the other, force the contributions of the people in the form of taxation to provide a welfare for the people who don't have enough. Christians did otherwise. This was the conflict of Christianity. I have a whole article up so you can go see the conflict between what Christianity was doing, the private religion, the private welfare system of Christians, as opposed to the public religion or public welfare system of the governments of the world who exercise authority one over the other, who are the fathers of the earth. And see, we need to repent of that and go another way. To go back the way of righteousness. Now, we've got all kinds of audios up at His Holy Church uh, and at PreparingYou.com. And you can go through most of the uh, epistles. We've covered them already. That... uh, explain, show you the words, what these words actually meant, what was going on in history at that time. I saw another preacher who everybody was saying, oh, he's so wonderful and everything. And and, uh, he was talking about Job. And, you know, why was... Job, why did he have these plagues and hard things happen to him? Why did God let those happen to him? And he says there's nowhere in Job where he explains that. I thought, well, there's everywhere in nature and everywhere in the Bible that explains that. I mean, why was Christ on the cross? Why why do bad things happen? Well, most bad things happen because... We've abandoned God. We've abandoned the wisdom of God. We've abandoned the righteousness of God. And uh, we uh, are not doing what he said. But it rains on the just and the unjust. And droughts come on the unjust and the just. But God gives us a way around these things. And like uh, I was telling somebody, you know, why, why do things have to be so hard? And I thought, like, the cat's claws give wings to birds. The, the jackal gives speed to the gazelle and teaches the gazelle to leap and run. That's, that's built into creation. You know, winter and summer create stress in the environment that also brings strength. The wind blows so that the trunk of the tree is thick. If the wind did not blow, if you grow up a tree, many many species of trees, if you grew them up in a greenhouse, they would grow and then fall over because the trunk would never get strong because it never contended with the wind. And so... It's about to get windy in the world today. And it will be a test. And you can imagine that you are going to be clever and a survivalist and strong and learn to scavenge your food in the woods and 
and uh, or maybe stock up and have this bunker somewhere. But that is not going to give you the solution. And because that is almost always motivated out of saving yourself. And if you're interested in saving yourself more than saving others, then you don't have the character of Christ. You're not coming in the name of Christ because he didn't come to save himself. So yeah, there's going to be dearth in the land and there's going to be difficulties in the land and uh, we need to repent and turn around and go the other way of righteousness so that we are not going those ways of unrighteousness which are the ways of the world. Because almost everywhere now, the world is going the other way. It's going away from the truth. It's going away from the righteousness of God. And what is it, about 60 times this word dearth shows up and we see dearth come and the Israelites go into bondage. And we see the same thing, you know, in the time of some of the prophets where there was almost no grain left in the barrel, just enough for one mill. And the woman chose to share her last morsels of grain with the man of God. And, lo and behold, she never ran out of grain. How did that happen? Miracle of miracles. Well, yeah, that's the way it works. But, by the same token, we have this idea that that somehow or other, that's Old Testament. But yet, Christ tells us these many who think they're Christians, he's going to tell them, Get ye from me. I know you not. Because you're a worker of iniquity. You don't even know me. You don't know nature. You don't know common sense. You don't know practicality. You don't know the Bible. You've read it. But you miss some of the most obvious statements of the Bible. Some of the most obvious principles in the Bible. So who does get to come into the kingdom? It's not those guys. Not those guys professing themselves Christians, but doing the opposite of what Christ said. Actually doing, you know, coveting their neighbor's goods and forcing their neighbor to pay for their children's education. That's how they end up owning your children. Is because if you read our Call No Man Father, when Jesus said, Call No Man on Earth Father, he was talking about these men who were going to offer all these benefits. And they didn't, they didn't offer a fraction of the benefits that I see coming from the governments of the world today. They didn't even come close to offering the amount of benefits they offer. And that's why it, on the front of the book, Covenants of the Gods, it's a picture of the Pied Piper who ends up with all the children. Takes them away to some unknown place because they're his possessions. We'll be back to Keys in the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we're back in Rome again. We're back in the bondage of Egypt again. We're dependent upon legal charity, which the early American forefathers warned us against. Uh, 
Even Alexis Tocqueville warned us against legal charity. And, of course, Corbin was a form of legal charity as the Pharisees presented it in the government temple of Judea built by Herod. And it was the same type of legal charity you find in the Temple of Roma and the Temple of uh, of uh, the uh, Virgin Temple of Rome, the Parthenos, and the Temple of Ephesus. They were all based on legal charity. In, in Ephesus, it was more like an investment brokerage, but it was also had a branch of it that was a legal charity system, a welfare for the poor. But if you invested in those uh, institutions, you would supposedly get dividends back. And uh, But the money system began to decay. And like we pointed out in one of the books, uh, the Temple at Ephesus, and in the article, you can look up Ephesus at uh, Preparing You, that they were actually lowering the amount of gold in the golden denarii and the golden coins uh, by the accumulation process of using bone ash. But today, we've gone way farther than anything that we see back in those days. And so the fall is going to be greater. There's so many more people here and we've already seen a disruption in the food supply. We've had the disruption in the, you know, true money supply, right? While everybody was going to church singing their songs, they you went from a system of just weights and measures to a system that is not just weights and measures that have no value whatsoever, and they're about to even to take that away from you, and then all your wealth will be digital. No, the, there is a day of reckoning coming. And you don't need to be Agabus to figure it out. So we're going to continue with our studies. Uh, still going to go back to Zephaniah. We're going to look at Galatians. Uh, we're, and if you have, if what you need to do more than anything else, though, is sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And I, I was going to talk about a number of other things today. Uh, you know, and Galatians talks about the who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And uh, in uh, Galatia uh, chapter 5, and it talks about standing fast. Well, we haven't sta- stood fast. We were called unto liberty, but we have not stayed at liberty. If you de- If you send men to your neighbor's house to force them to contribute then you're not in favor of liberty. You're in favor of license. You want to do what you want to do, but you're not going to let your neighbor do what he wants to do. You're going to take away what your neighbor produced so that you can have free stuff. If you're thinking that that's okay, you're not thinking like Christ. You're not a Christian. You're not born again. You could be born again, but you have to repent. Repent of the idea that it's okay to take from your neighbor. It's not okay. It's never been okay. And Christ didn't come to make it okay. And so we're, we could also go to Zephaniah 
and uh, I put together that study, and we're going to do a lot more on Acts and try to get through the Gospels. And what I've been doing because of these different questions that come up and they're answered in some of these quotes, you know, like originally dearth, all I had on that page was that a dearth is this shortage, <laughs> which could be called a famine. But there's a lot more to it. And to understand how that works. See, when you can have a dearth of a lot of stuff, a shortage of a lot of stuff, but you do not want a shortage of the Holy Spirit. Every time you deny the truth, every time you don't admit the truth when confronted with it, then you deny the Holy Spirit. Because that's what the... Holy Spirit is what gives you the truth. You don't find the truth in the tree of knowledge. You find the truth in the Holy Spirit. And that's... You find the Holy Spirit when you admit that you're not God. You're not able to make these decisions that as to what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. It's, it's just one of those most astounding things to me that that people don't see this basic idea of not coveting your neighbor's goods. And of course, you know, Paul goes into it, Peter goes into it, Jesus went into it, certainly Moses did, the Ten Commandments did. You're not to you're not to desire stuff at the expense of your neighbor. Polybius saw that. Pagan Polybius. Plutarch saw it. Now some of Plutarch's solutions were terrible. But he could see some of the problem, which is why I wrote that book, Covenants of the Gods, which is free online. You can just look up covenant, go to hisholychurch.org and, and type into the search engine and you can find the book. But it won't do you any good unless you're willing to see the truth. Because it's showing you that you've been you're in violation of all ten of the Ten Commandments as a matter of policy while calling yourself a follower of Christ. That just does not compute. So but it's not enough for me to rant and rave and preach the fire and brimstone that is coming. <laughs> you know, if you if you can't find the kingdom of heaven within you, you're not going to find it after you die. So the epistles uh, to the Galatians, often called Galatians, is part of the New Testament letters written by Paul. It is a letter from Paul the Apostle to a number of early Christian communities in the Roman province of Galatia. Uh, like Paul's letter to the Romans, he is principally concerned with the controversy surrounding Gentile Christians and the more Orthodox Jews and their views of the Mosaic Law during the Apostolic Age. They call that the Apostolic Age. This is the Apostolic Age too. <laughs> Although they want to limit it. Oh, only the Apostles were Apostles and that was the when they all died the Apostolic Age ended. Now, that's, nobody thought that for a thousand years or more. But it's a modern concoction of the idea. Apostolic is those sent. 
God's still sending people to tell you the truth and reveal it to you, but you have to be willing to see it. So, this problem of supposed Gentile Christians, which Gentile means other nation Christians, and the more Orthodox Jews, that that's, you know, I, I put these things in here, but I want you to understand, what's an Orthodox Jew? Wasn't Jesus an Orthodox Jew? Well, not by some people's standards. If we're going to take the word of the Pharisees, Jesus was not an Orthodox Jew. I mean, what does Orthodox mean? What is, what is the definition of the word Orthodox? You know, if you looked it up, what do you think it means? Just without looking it up, what do you think it means to be Orthodox? Uh, you know, this is this is one of the things that we have to all contend with is the fact that the words. And then, what what did it mean? You know, a hundred years ago, five hundred years ago. You see, orthodox is one of those perspective words that it means what it means to the person using it. And, uh, you know, like, what is orthodox Christianity? Well, orthodox Christianity, if orthodox uh, is of a person or their view, especially religious or political ones, because you can be orthodox politically, or other beliefs or practices, is conforming to what is generally or traditionally accepted as right or true, established and approved. Well, wasn't Christ... Now, you say traditionally. Well, Christ pointed out the traditions of the Pharisees were not the traditions of Moses. But the traditions of Christ were the traditions of Moses. But not as the Pharisees saw them. So, orthodoxy is a perspective term. A a point of view term. Christ was an orthodox Jew. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't, he didn't see orthodoxy like the Pharisees. Orthodoxy is this adherence to correct or accepted Creeds, especially in religion. Well, what was the creed of Christ? What was the creed of God? Was religion the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man? Or was religion going to church and saying you love Jesus? While doing the absolute opposite of what Jesus said to do. So, yeah, there's there's all kinds of Jews... All, this is why I didn't want to say, you know, the Jews killed Jesus. Because the apostles were Jews and they didn't kill Jesus. Many of the Essenes were Jews and they didn't kill Jesus. Some of the Pharisees clearly were on Jesus' side and voted not to kill Jesus. So you can't even say he was killed by the Pharisees. He was killed by men who said they were Pharisees. He was killed by men who said they were Jews. But what made those men what they were was they would not see the truth of his gospel. That you are not to covet your neighbor's goods. The agency of men who exercise authority one over the other. That you are to love one another, forgive one another. And that word love again is the same word for charity. 
And Paul uses it. They often translate it charity. You are to take care of one another through charity. That's what John the Baptist said. Are you doing that? If you're not doing that, you're not practicing pure religion. If you're doing that a little bit, you're still not practicing pure religion. You're under a strong delusion, just like the guy jumping in the water to outswim those gals in the Olympics. You're just under a delusion. You're not the best woman swimmer. You're the best guy pretending to be a woman swimmer. You're not a Christian. You're pretending to be a Christian. And you have to be a real Christian to be a real follower of Christ. And being a real follower of Christ will allow you to be born again. But if you still don't love the truth, love the light, if you're still doing works of iniquity, you're not born again. And that's the evidence that God gives you. Just read John 3. Read on. Read beyond what your minister told you. You don't have to take my word for it. It's right there in the text. So, do you want to be a real Christian? Do you want to be a real follower of Christ? Do you want to live according to the perfect law of liberty? Do you want to... If you're going to repent, what does it say? Just repent and you're saved? No. The instructions were over and over again. Repent and seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It is righteous to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. It is not righteous to take care of one another through force, fear, and fealty. And this, to tell you that, is an apostolic message. And the Mosaic Law was telling you that. They never used the word charity, but they used free will offering all the time. Now, in this book of, uh, or epistle of Galatia, there is no original copy known at this time besides fragments, uh, the most complete version available uh, is what they call P46, which is Papyrus 46. Written on papyrus, of course, and it only dates from around 200 A.D. Now, the epistles of Paul were written before the Gospels. The Gospels weren't written, and Paul studied the Gospels, and then he went out and he wrote. They 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 came after this, and they, and many of them were written by people who were not even apostles. So so much for apostolic age. I mean, Mark wasn't an apostle. Matthew wasn't an apostle. That they don't even they they speculate as to the authorship of a lot of these. Now, I'm I'm not questioning them. I don't question the doctrines that you might glean from them. But the doctrines you're gleaning is your private interpretation. Even if you're a theologian, it's still a private interpretation. The Doctrines of the church established by Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the definition. You know, the word church, if you look it up in a legal dictionary, in its most general sense, now this is church, the word church in a general sense. Not the ecclesia, but a general sense of the word church as we use it today, is the religious society 
A society is with lots of different groups of people that come together in some sort of social structure founded and established by Jesus Christ to receive, preserve, and propagate His doctrines and ordinances. Now, His doctrines are what He taught. If He didn't say it, it's not His doctrine. It may be a doctrine you can glean out of the Bible through a private interpretation. It may be right. You may have all kinds of doctrines that you get out of the Bible that are true, although you may be misinterpreting some of them. But it's the doctrines and ordinances of Jesus Christ that are the doctrines and ordinances of his church. And, of course, one of his ordinances was that we were not to exercise authority one over the other like the governments of the Gentiles. So immediately it makes us a different kind of government. And the second half of that legal definition is that the church, assuming this is in a less specific, uh, less general sense, is a body or a community. Now a body may be a small body within a community and the community is this whole Christian community. It says a body or community of Christians united under one form of government. By the profession of one faith and the observance of the same rituals and ceremonies. Now, what are the rituals and ceremonies of the church established by Jesus Christ? Well, what rituals and ceremonies did Jesus set up? Well, one is that you're supposed to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. There's a ritual and ceremony where everybody organizes themselves in that. Another one of them is that you feed the poor and the needy amongst you. And even even the stranger in your midst, if you can afford it. And you don't oppress them. That's our rituals and ceremonies, that we love one another. You know, we may gather every week. And those that have share with those that don't have enough. If somebody is taking away your neighbor's child, you come to their aid. If they're taking away your neighbor's property unjustly, you you come to their aid. Why? Because one of the rituals and ceremonies and ordinances and doctrines of Jesus Christ is that we are to attend to the weightier matters. Yeah. We're not the, the, the weightier matters, we don't just turn that over to other people. We attend to it. And the weightier matters are law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And so we should be, when we see this injustice, we shouldn't say, well, you better get a lawyer. I got to go to church. You're not the good Samaritan, obviously. So in order to do that efficiently, you should be in a network of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands because there will be some of you that are lawyers. And some of you might be bankers even. And some of you might be, uh, you know, wheat farmers. And some of you might be all kinds of things. So what happens if you're a wheat farmer and we wanted to order a semi-load of grain from you? And you could sell it over here to these guys or you could sell it to us. Right now, I know people who tried to order grain and they can't get it. I actually know, just heard this morning that somebody owed, uh, ordered some rolled oats from a bulk supply place. And they can't get it. They're out. 
Well, oats are grown in the summertime. <laughs> this is the beginning of summer and they're already out. And so they didn't have enough to get them all the way through to the next harvest. Well, most of you, I'm pretty sure, have the habit of eating every day. Although, a little intermittent fasting is, will help cure cancer. Did you know that? <laughs> it's probably as important as, important as those uh, omega-3s. So you're going to get a lot of opportunity for that. But understanding that the church is one form of government that does not covet your neighbor's goods. It operates by faith, not by force. And by the the observance of something that we have in common, that union and discipline comes from those rituals of gathering together in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and taking care of one another. Because the dearth and the land and the daily ministration is not just for an occasional widow. Not in any way, shape, or form. I'm kind of answering somebody who made that comment. And I thought like, wow, how could people not realize that the whole church was united? Not isolated home churches. They were home churches, ten families in a home church. But they were networked together by a common system of charity through that network that provided for the needs of society, which became very great when those famines that Agabus told us about and what Christ told would be coming and the wars and the rumors of wars and the economic famines, because the dearth can simply be a lack of funds. You know, there are homes out here we saw that were going for $300,000 a couple of years ago. Actually dropped during covid now they're over a million for the same home. At least they're asking it. I don't know if they're getting it. But uh, there will be another turn. But I'm not. I, I will share that on the network and with individuals. Uh, but uh, I would recommend that everybody uh, go back and listen to some of our past shows. On and you'll find them at these different articles. Uh, on all these different, you know, the Roman imperial cult. What was that? Uh, why did Jesus say, call no, no man on earth father? Everybody in the audience, everybody gathered around Jesus when he said that, knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said, call no man on earth father. But today, if you go into almost every church I've been in, and you ask them, why did Jesus say that? Call no man father upon the earth. Why did Jesus say that? Who was the... They actually say, well, you're not supposed to call your dad father. (laughs) What? Where do you guys get this stuff? I I mean, I... Theologians, uh, priests, pastors, ministers, evangelists, you go up and ask them, who were the fathers that Jesus was talking about? Well, you can go to Preparing You and read the article. You may be shocked. Uh, what, what was what was the daily ministration but a welfare system? But it had to be, if it was of Christ, it had to be a welfare system that strengthened the poor because the welfare systems of Sodom 
and, and of Gomorrah weakened the poor. So, how does the system of Rome and the system of the Pharisees come into conflict with the system of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist? That's something we all need to understand and we need to know. And so, next week we, well, we may get into Galatia. I, uh, I, I can't guarantee that. There may be some other crazy thing that's going on in the world and I'm suddenly motivated and the Holy Spirit says, Talk about this instead. Because <laughs> that's what he tells us. That's in the instruction. That, you know, I can't guarantee what we're going to talk about, except I'm going to talk about what the Holy Spirit puts on my heart. And until then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.